I'm part of an author's group um, that recently asked everybody in the group, this online bunch, to share a few favorite words. Uh, there, were, there were a lot of interesting uh, posts that were made. A bunch of them had to do with the sound or the feel of the word. A lot of authors' favorite words were ones like colloquial or felicity or loquacious or abstemious. Uh, there was one that was absolutely hilarious. This was my favorite. One guy posted a word from Middle English, balter. And he, which means, by the way, to dance gracelessly, without particular art or skill, but with perhaps some enjoyment. Um, Balter. And somebody else took that, captured it, and then added this to the bottom of it. I had no idea there was a word for what I do. Um, that was fantastic. But the most profound, uh, I think, of all the posts, and they were all interesting, the most profound was this one. Somebody wrote, reconciliation. She said, my favorite word is reconciliation. There is no word as moving. Now, that led to a wide-ranging and really useful discussion. I took notes because I, I wanted to summarize it for you. It started like this. There, were, there was a boatload of comments reciting the current mantra of our time, things like, we're too disunified, we need to bring people together. And, and that went on and on until someone wrote this. Someone said, modern French sociologist Jean Baudrillard was correct about reconciliation. When asked why he was rejecting the utopian Marxism of his youth, Baudrillard wrote, the world is not dialectical. It is sworn to extremes, not to equilibrium. Sworn to radical antagonism, not to reconciliation or synthesis. This is also the principle of evil, close quote. Now that is correct. This world is set against unity, equilibrium, and wholeness. That's why the yin-yang idea is so absurd, as Pastor Jeremy pointed out recently here in this pulpit. Entropy is real. Evil is real. Reconciliation is actually not possible for human beings. That caused another author to chime in with this. He said, if you want to understand reconciliation, real reconciliation, then you must examine Christianity. Reconciliation is the core issue in that religion. The Bible contains the most beautiful statements of it. To which I added this. I said, only an otherworldly God could make reconciliation a reality. He would have to be untainted by the evil, Baudrillard noted, yet nonetheless engage fully in this irreconcilable world. That, Charlie Brown, is what Christianity and Christmas are all about. In fact, the Greek Bible has a word for this. The word is katalasso. It's your fancy word for the day, boys and girls. On the count of three, you get to say katalasso. It is our word for the day. Katalasso. One, two, three. Katalasso. Very nice. Katalasso is the word of reconciliation in the Bible. Now, before anyone comes unglued and starts yelling at me, I know what many of you are wondering. In your Middle English accent, which for you is probably based on a combination of the TV show Vikings and Monty Python, um, you are saying, what happened to the study of Mark? We just finished chapter 8, right? I understand. I, I, love, I was loving Mark as well, and we will get back to our study of the Gospel of Mark. But there is a natural break in Mark. There's a natural transition at chapter 8, and, and we just hit that point, and so that transition allows us a moment to step back for this new study. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to learn from eight wonderful words, biblical terms that amaze minds and change hearts. This is really significant for our growth, and here's what I'm most excited about. The eight words that we're going to study in this series are eight terms that it just so happens we need to really understand if we're going to get the most out of the last half of the Gospel of Mark, all right? Long ago, Gregory of Nyssa put it this way. 
He said, what benefit can we reap from this generous gift if we have not the meanings of the words explained to us? So, let's grasp some terms that help us get the most out of Mark. Of our eight great words, the first is katalasso, the word of reconciliation. As we say in the notes, and uh, we're so pleased to be with you wherever you are. If you're online, you should have a place that you can go and check and, and grab the notes. For those of you here, open up the bulletin you got when you came in. You'll see the headline, katalasso demands change to meet the standard. Katalasso is really a simple word, yet it's very profound. It's very deep. It pictures something that is right and something that is wrong. Katalasso is the process of change whereby the wrong thing is made right. It is justified with that which was right. Interestingly, and this fascinates me, katalasso, which is a religious word, never used anywhere in Greek religion. Isn't that intriguing? Katalasso was never used of any pagan god or goddess. Sometimes the, the classical Greeks would use katalasso of relationships between people, uh, but it was always temporary, never of a long-term relationship, any relationship between pagan gods and goddesses. Jews of the classical era would use katalasso when they wrote, but they always used it of a very temporary thing. It would be a temporary uh, rapprochement with, uh, with what is right, but never anything lasting. But the New Testament, oh, that's a different matter. Katalasso is one of the great words of the New Testament. Look at your notes. I put this quote there from the dictionary, theological dictionary of the New Testament. Great summary of katalasso. Paul uses the word katalasso of the relation between God and man. God reconciles us or the world to himself. He's not reconciled, nor does he reconcile himself to us or to the world. On the other hand, we are reconciled to God, Romans 5, 2 Corinthians 5, which we'll study in a moment. Thus, God and man are not on equal terms in relation to reconciliation. Reconciliation is not reciprocal in the sense that both equally become friends where they were enemies. The supremacy of God over man is maintained in every respect, close quote. Friedrich Buchsel wrote that. One is right. The other has to be changed to be brought into usefulness. God is the unchanging standard. Humans are reconciled to Him, not the other way around. Now, I know what you're thinking. In your, uh, in your Jean Baudrillard imitation, you're asking, ah, but surely reconciliation is not needed in our age. There is no accepted standard anymore. Huh? People see no need to change in order to meet some uh, absolute that does not exist. Uh, Merci, Monsieur Postmodernist. Many agree with you, Jean. However, <clears throat> having no absolute standard doesn't work. Let me show you. There are really only three ways to approach life. Three ways to approach life. The first goes by the name of the Christian worldview. It's actually broader than that. It's more than just Christianity, but we'll use the labels that we're given. Um, in this worldview, there is a standard to which everything must be reconciled. God is the standard. He is the ideal to which everything must be reconciled or, or is separated from Him forever. The second point of view is what's called modernism. It's actually really, really ancient. It's not modern at all, but I've given up trying to change the title. So, modernism says there is a stable standard. However, it's not some absolute that is set. We decide on our standard. The community chooses what the standard is going to be, and then everybody has to hold up to that standard. Third point of view is what's called postmodernism. It's also really ancient. In fact, it, it may be older than the modern point of view. Anyway, it, it, we'll go with the labels. Postmodern says there is no standard, and any attempt to, to even say there's a standard is oppressive. It is de facto oppressing people when you say there is a standard, right? 
Okay, so let's think this through. Those are, the, those are the only three ways to approach life. So let's think this through. When you receive your monthly bank statement, you go through a process whereby your record of your debit card and checkbook transactions are brought into line with the bank records. What is that process called? What's it called? Reconciling your check. You ought to try it once in a while. It's really fascinating. Um, it's a regular picture. Everything on earth needs reconciled to a standard. Um, this, this is my guitar, okay? This is my guitar. Had for some time. Really love this guitar. Why does it, why does it sound so bad? Yeah, well, you're right also, because I play horribly. Thank you. That's true. Um, yes, it's terribly out of tune. Let's suppose, let's just suppose, suppose we, let's look at that slide again. Let's suppose that we just decided we, we want, we want to live like modernists. And you know what? We've just decided that is now what the D sounds like. That is a D string, Dan. Not yours that is perfectly in tune and sounds great. This is now what the D is going to be. How's that going to work, everybody? Is that going to work? No. What's your orchestra going to sound like? Can you imagine? What, what if, let's take the postmodern point of view. We just decide there is no standard. Every, we'll just call D whatever we want to have, BD, and it'll sound great. How does that work? No, it doesn't work. What about your bank? Think about your bank. Talked about a bank statement. You, th you think your bank, how is this going to work if you say to your bank, you know what, I'm not reconciling my checkbook because I find it oppressive that you say I can only use my own money. How, how's that going to go? Do you want to drive on a bridge that was, that was not built to any standards? Do you? Yes or no? No. Okay. Look, thinking people always recognize that Christian worldview is the only viable logical one. We live in a world that has an absolute standard that we cannot meet, a world that needs katalasso. Please open your Bible to Romans chapter 5. Romans 5. Our discussion so far takes us right up to the amazing thoughts given by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 6. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though for a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die, but God provides His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. To make sure we understand the beauty of katalasso, of reconciliation, God first lays out our deviation from the standard. Look at these terms. No one in my author group listed these as their favorite words, helpless, ungodly, unjust, sinners. The writing is really poetic. Uh, verse 6 uses two words of humans. Helpless is asthenes, ungodly is asebes. Asthenes, asebes. Um, asthenes describes someone who is without strength. By the way, it's, it's not really physical. It's talking about moral character strength. Have you, have you ever had the flu? You ever had the flu, really bad flu? Where you were lying there, and there was, there was water nine miles away on your nightstand, Right? And you wanted, you needed that, you needed that water. And you, you kept waking up, you know, you fall asleep, you wake up, you, oh, I didn't make it that time. You know, you, you just, you cannot reach it. If you'll make that a character issue instead of a physical one, that's asthenes. Now, asebeis is, is the opposite kind of idea. It's not being able to stop doing what you know is killing you. It's, it's not being able to stop uh, pursuing alcohol or gossip or porn or whatever it is that, is that is dragging you down. So in this one rhyming sentence, we've got a, a complete summary of humanity, right? We're unable to reach the good we know we need. We're unable to stop reaching for the bad that we know destroys us. And Paul actually pokes fun at our situation with some really dark humor here. This is, this is dark. Look at his logic, verses 7 through 8. 
This, this is amazing. Okay, what's he saying? Someone might die in order to save a really good person. True? Okay. But, but, that's not necessary. Because a person who's already good, a person who's already right, they don't need saving. Got the logic? Okay, now look. Someone died for us humans. Ergo, we're not good. We're not right. I'm not right. There's something not right about us. In a word, we are sinners. Later, the text is going to show that we're not merely passive in our sin. Humans are by nature active enemies of God. And yet, miraculously, God made a way for us to be reconciled through the sacrifice of God the Son. My pulpit team had great comments on this. In our, in our chat about this, uh, Martin McDonald noted this. He said, every other religion teaches that one must reconcile himself or herself to God. Man is the primary mover, changing his action, behavior, etc., to a manner that, places, that pleases whatever God is being worshipped. Christianity is the only religion that teaches that God, whose standard is absolute past, present, and future perfection, God is the primary mover, reconciling us to Himself. We become pleasing because we are in Christ. Lason Ward added this. She said, the distinction made here is important. God is not reconciled to us. We are reconciled to God. We are responsible for the offenses that we commit, but we cannot make reconciliation on our own. That payment is too lofty for us since even our righteous deeds are filthy rags to God. Thus, it is necessary that a perfect God make a way for us to be reconciled to Him. Close quote. Do you understand my, my fellow standard deviations? Do you understand? All right, let's continue in Romans 5, where we learn about being reconciled to the standard. Verse 9, how much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by His blood, will we be saved through Him from wrath? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, then how much more, having been reconciled, we will be saved by His life? And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. Verses 6 through 8 showed our deviation from the standard. Now, verses 9 through 11 describes our reconciliation. Right side of our notes has the headline, Reconciled to the Standard. Uh, verse, justified in verse 9 is the critical term here. Uh, the word we translate justified is dikaiao. It's a, it's a form of dikaiao, which is the word since we have been justified. It's very similar to katalaso, to reconciliation. But get this, dikaiao has a narrower forensic application. It's a, it's a legal term. It has to do with getting out of prison, with getting out of punishment. Now, verse 10 gets to katalaso. We are reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God the Son. We are saved, dikaiao, from the wrath that we deserve for sin. But it's more than just pardoned. We're also reconciled. Through Jesus' life, we are brought up into the standard. Go back to that funny word we talked about earlier, balter, right? The medieval verb that we talked about, to dance gracelessly without particular art or skill, but perhaps some enjoyment. Everyone stand, please, if you would. I'd appreciate it if you would stand. Put your notes down. Put your Bible down. If you're at home, please stand. Please stand. If you're driving, do not. Um, stand up, if you would. All right. Now, I am going to show you a video clip. If you're, if you're able, stand, if, if you wish, and you're able. Okay. I'm going to show you a video clip, and this is perfection. I'm going to show you Dancing Perfection. This is Nina Kutsova, prima ballerina of the Bolshoi Ballet. All right? She is going to dance for one minute. For that one minute, this is going to be the best workout you're going to have all week in one minute. For that one minute, you are to do what she does. Do you understand? Oh, yes. Yes, and the cameras will be recording this for all the world to enjoy. You're going to do what she does without hurting yourself. 
without moving around, just where you're at, okay, try to imitate everything Nina Kutsova does. See if you, see if you can, oh, I'm, I'm, you're in for a treat. <laughs> First position, second, okay, ready? All right, here we go, here we go. Uh, we have no sound. We need sound. We have to have music. I can't move without music. There we go. Very good. Oh, oh, oh. Okay, I got that part. All right, good. Oh, oh I missed that one. Okay, good. Oh, okay. Oh, my toes hurt. Yeah. Okay, good, good. You're doing great. She spins a lot. That's not bad. That's not bad. Oh, you got another one of those. Okay, little plie. I got it. Okay, good. Oh, golly, my toes. Okay, all right. She's so graceful. Look at that. Just like me. Okay. Ah, that's amazing. Okay. No, keep going. Keep going. Come on, you pansies. You're not done. Good. There you go. That's the last bit. All right. Give yourselves a hand and have a seat. None of us got anywhere close. A couple of you were actually pretty good, but no one reached that mark, right? Nobody. I mean, look at that. She's smiling while she does that. Now, what if Mademoiselle Capsova were to dance for you? What if her perfect performance, and it was perfect, wasn't it? What if that was substituted for your balter, Right? then what would happen? You would be reconciled to perfection, right? You would boast about this free gift. It wasn't earned by you, but it's the only source of all your pride. Look at me, right? That's exactly what Jesus has done. As a Christian, you are now and forever a part of the life of Jesus. You are no longer a deviation. You're integral to his perfect dance. 20th century theologian Karl Barth put it this way. This, then, is the Christian's unio cum Christo, union with Jesus, being received and adopted as an integral element in the life of Christ. Amen? Now, let's move from the meaning of reconciliation, that we are, that we are with the Lord of the dance. Let's move to the means of reconciliation. How? How does God accomplish this amazing katalasso where Jesus dances in our place? The blood of Jesus, look at your text, Romans 5, 9 through 11. The blood of Jesus justifies us. It is the means of our reconciliation. Excuse me, verse 11 flows from verse 9, just as surely as Jesus' blood flowed from the cross. And that blood is necessary to make sinful humans acceptable to a holy triune God. My old teacher, uh, Dwight Pentecost, had a great note on this. Look at, uh, from Dr. P's old book, uh, Things Which Become Sound Doctrine. Katalasso, the word translated atonement or reconciliation here, is the word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in regard to applying blood to the mercy seat. When the high priest caught the blood of the sacrificed animal in the basin and carried that basin through the holy place, behind the veil, and into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, he sprinkled that blood upon the mercy seat. He was then making reconciliation for the sins of the people. And reconciliation in the Old Testament was always by the sprinkling of blood. Apart from blood, there was no reconciliation. One could not be changed to meet God's standards apart from the shedding of blood. When Paul uses blood in verse 9 and katalasso in verse 10 of Romans 5, 
He's reminding us of every single lamb ever slain in the Old Testament. Every one of those was a picture, a promise of Jesus, the Lamb of God who would come to take away sin. Do not be scared of Jesus' blood. Don't shy away from it. It is the means of our reconciliation. The blood's not magical. The power comes from what it represents, Jesus laying his life down for us. Now, look up here, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16, parallel passage, and it shows us that the cross is also a means of our reconciliation to God. Ephesians 2, 16, he did this, and in context, talking about Jesus bleeding on the cross, he did this so that he might reconcile both Jew and Gentile to God in one body through the cross, by which he put the hostility to death. Reconcile here. I love this. Reconcile here is a, is a form of katalasso that Paul apparently made up. It, uh, it never appears anywhere in literature before this, but it's easily understandable. Isn't that cool? I've told you before that, that Paul's good buddy Luke made up a whole lot of words so that he could try to describe the indescribable advent of Jesus. And so Paul does the same thing here. He, he puts a little modifier in there to show the cross is part of reconciliation. The closest parallel to this verse to me probably is in the military. It, it stories, um, stories in the military give a, a, a taste, a little bit of taste of what this is saying about Jesus reconciling us through the cross, through the death, the sacrifice on the cross. I want to read you a story from Lord Ashcroft. This appeared in the Mail newspaper in uh, 2020, uh, April of 2020. And uh, Lord Ashcroft writes this, Lance Corporal Matthew Croucher was on a mission to investigate a Taliban compound near Sangreen in Afghanistan in 2008 when he accidentally triggered a booby-trapped grenade. He and his men were heading back to base under cover of darkness when they stumbled into a four-meter tripwire linked to the explosive. <clears throat> and I seem to be having trouble. There we go. Instead of running for cover, this Royal Marine threw himself onto the device, dropping down backwards and praying his backpack and body armor would absorb most of the blast, an act of supreme bravery that saved the lives of the three other members of his patrol. In a final briefing before their Afghanistan mission, Lance Corporal Croucher and his fellow servicemen had been warned against taking unnecessary risks. No heroics, lads, okay? Were the troop commander's final words. All that was forgotten in the heat of the moment as this young reservist willingly risked his life to save others. It was an action that not only saved Lance Corporal Croucher's comrades, but remarkably ensured the 24-year-old would survive with just minor injuries thanks to his heavy pack. Some of you have carried those packs. You can believe that it would absorb a grenade, can't you? His bravery would later be recognized with the George Cross. Now, that George Cross medal is awarded for acts, and I quote here, of the greatest heroism or the most conspicuous courage in circumstances of extreme danger. But I want to ask you this. Why is the medal designed this way in the shape of a cross? Why the George's cross? Because there is no symbol of salvation like the cross. It is the ultimate picture in sacrificing self to overcome hostility, of sacrifice to reconcile God and man. All God's people said? All right, now turn over to 2 Corinthians. You're in Romans. Go two books to the east in your Bible. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to learn about our third means of reconciliation. Third means of reconciliation is Jesus' identification with sinners. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. 521, he, talking about God the Father, made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God the Father viewed Jesus, God the Son, as absorber of all sin. And that's our third means of reconciliation, the blood, the cross, and Jesus' identification with us and our sin. Jesus had no sin. He took it for us. When our kids were little, 
One of our boys really, really did not like being dirty, just didn't like getting dirty in the least at all. The others, the others were very much typical urchins in the street covered with filth all the time, all right? What if the one who didn't get dirty, what if he willingly took all the dirt of the others, what he hated most, he took on himself just so they could be clean? Wouldn't that be amazing? Never happened with my kid. But... Uh, but it did happen with God the Son. That is exactly what happened. Jesus identified with us, and he took all of that filth. Remember those dirty words that are true of us, Romans 5? Remember helpless, ungodly, unjust sinners, enemies? All of that was put on Jesus, and in its place we received the righteousness of God. Righteousness of God, impossible for humanity, is applied to us. To us, all God's people said what? How about a hallelujah? Now, notice this only happens in Christ, in Him. Do you see in Him? That's, that's the inclusio. The, there's a, an inclusio is just a bookend. There's, there's bookend phrases that hold together this section of 2 Corinthians. We started with the end about being in Him. Now, let's go back and read the whole paragraph. Start at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to Himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making His appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Here we get to the end of our study, and this is the results of reconciliation, the results of katalasso. Verse 17 describes ever-newness. Look up here. I want you to look at the slide. The very first sentence is, is really terse in the Greek. It literally reads, anyone in Christ's new creation. Now, that form, that type of form implies something that is now and not yet. It's actually done for effect fairly often in Greek writing when you're trying to be dramatic. And writing like that says that this is something that is true now, but it's also not yet done. So now, if you're a Christian, you are changed. You are in Jesus. He dances for you. And yet, you're not done. You're still always changing until the fulfillment of God's promise to create a perfect new heavens and new earth. The sea there is also really telling. When, when, when it's used that way in the Bible, it always refers to a quantum shift, a, 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 a deep change in activity. Because the Christian is changed and ever-changing, he or she lives differently. The old way of living goes. See, a new one comes. The old slavery to sin is gone. New actions and attitudes come in Jesus. Remember, Paul wrote this. Paul... Paul, the guy who was changed from a persecutor of Christ to a proclaimer of Christ because he was in Christ. By the way, that phrase, in Christ, is Paul's favorite method for describing a believer's spiritual relationship to God. He on Listen carefully. Paul only used that phrase of people who believed the message of the gospel and identified by faith in Jesus. Only used it of them. To be in Christ means that, that one is changed by faith. One is reconciled to God. And that work begun in every single Christian will one day be consummated in an entirely new universe. I want to dig a little bit more into this ever newness, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to run a risk here. I'm going to take you to something really, really deep, because I think as you chew on it, it will help you understand what it means to be new in Christ. Any of you math geeks know this symbol right here? 
omega, yeah, but it's in mathematics, uh, particularly in calculus, it can be used for absolute infinite. The absolute infinite is an extension of an idea of infinity proposed by this remarkable mathematician, Georg Cantor. Georg Cantor originated set theory. He, um, he's the first one to talk about what we're going to see in a moment, the split idea of infinity. So for you English people, split infinitives was his deal. Um, uh, he was the one who developed diagonal hypothesis, which um, in summary is why we have working cell phones today, among many other things. Okay, remarkable guy. 1883, Cantor posited the idea of absolute infinity with a really elegant proof. And here is my very inelegant attempt to summarize it. Okay, here's his proof about absolute infinity. Infinity should be considered in terms of transfinite and absolute. The transfinite is increasable in magnitude, while the absolute is unincreasable. For example, an ordinal number A is transfinite because it can be increased to A plus 1, right? The set can always change. On the other hand, the ordinals, and here he means every single number, the ordinals form an absolutely infinite sequence that cannot be increased in magnitude because there are no ordinals to add to it. It seems to change, but it does not. The illusion is found in the ever-changing perspective of the viewer. Hold your horses. I know what you're thinking. In your, uh, in your German theologian accent, you're asking, what does this have to do with zwei Korinther von Sepsen? Great question. Stay with me here. What Cantor is saying is really important. There exists in mathematic theory an absolute infinity which cannot be increased, and yet it's not static. The very fact that it's infinite means that it is always new, depending upon where you view the set. Cantor foolishly called this absolute infinity God. It's not God, but absolute infinity is a nice parallel to what we're seeing in God's Word. Jesus is absolutely infinite. When someone is placed in Him, that person becomes part of something totally stable, absolute. But the adventure of being in the infinite Jesus is ever new. Like anything of infinity, it changes every day based on where you are, while at the same time, where you are in Christ never changes. This is why life in Christ is so varied and so exciting. Read with me. Uh, Lamentations 3, 22 through 23, uh, you take the underlined text. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish. For His mercies never end, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So, so there is new every morning. Every morning, life in Jesus is new. And yet, James chapter 1 tells us this. Read it with me, everybody. James 1, 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. It is precisely because God does not change that His gifts are ever new. That's what you get to experience if you are reconciled with the one who is absolutely infinite. As I mentioned earlier, 17 and 21 form the inclusio, the, the bookends in this powerful passage. Let's get to the middle part now of being in Jesus. This is the calling to reconciliation in verses 18 through 20. God commissions us as His ambassadors. We cry out, come see. Our, our lives and our words appeal to people. Be reconciled to God. I love Dr. Barclay's summary of this. Dr. Barclay said, the very essence of Christianity is the restoration of a lost relationship. The summons of Christianity is, is a return to a God whose love men spurned, but whose love is ever waiting to take them home. With that in mind, we're going to light our second candle for this Advent season, the candle 
of reconciliation. You know, lighting these Advent candles, thank you, Annika, is a tradition that I think gives a nice picture of the, of the, of the stability and ever-newness. It's the same every year, and yet it's always different. It's always new. It's attractional, right? When Annika walked over here and lit that candle, everybody's eyes were drawn to it there in the dark. And in the same way, our lives are to be colossal. We are to be winsome, drawing people to be reconciled to God. Right? So with that in mind, I one time gave this assignment to a bunch of my college students. I said, what habit, I asked them to write an essay. What habit needs to change for you to be a better ambassador? What needs to change for you to be a better ambassador? Verses 17 and 21 tell us this is about being in Christ, newness of life. So what needs to change for you to live out a new life? A lot of great answers in their essays. I just culled four of them to show you. Here's the first one. I need to stop cursing. Listening to me, others probably think the Christian isn't any different. I am, but it needs to show. Another one of my students said this. I'm not sure how to change, but I should ask God to make me less selfish. I'm really self-centered. That doesn't gel with being part of the group led by the ultimate self-sacrificer. And then he added this, my grammar correct says that self-sacrificer isn't a word, but I don't think you should count off. You said that theologians make up words to describe the infinite, so that's my contribution. (laughs) Nice, very nice. I did not count off. Uh, Here's a couple more. I will work on relaxing. Since I'm promised eternal perfection, the old anxieties need to move out. Um, I have to speak up more about what's right. I've always been too mousy. I I need to do what Jesus does and speak truth. Dan Bolin was never my student, but he was one of our missionaries for a number of years, and he wrote an excellent essay on this calling of ours to be reconcilers, to be ambassadors of katalasso, of reconciliation. I want to read read this to you. It's a a bit long, but it's so, so good. Okay, Listen, listen to this. Dan wrote, I don't always do it well, but my hope is to live an ambassadorial adventure. Any adventure, by definition, requires an unknown outcome. We're not supposed to know all the answers. Along the way, we face challenges, choices, risks, and opportunities. Adventures include the elements of learning, hard work, fun, and much more. As Christians, we're called to enter an ambassadorial adventure. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, 2 Corinthians 5. As ambassadors, we now have a diplomatic passport. Therefore, we work and play in this world as representatives of our true homeland. We express the truth of our king in word and deed, and we embody the values of our celestial culture. Part of the adventure is responding with ambassadorial poise and dignity when turbulence strikes. We can choose to respond. Oh, sorry, I skipped one. As ambassadorial adventure unfolds, we inevitably encounter turbulence. Sometimes the disturbances are minor. We lose our keys, stub a toe, forget an assignment, but sometimes the turmoil is severe. We lose our job, the diagnosis is cancer, the spouse abandons marital vows or death calls close to home. Part of the adventure is responding with ambassadorial poise and dignity when that turbulence strikes. We can choose to respond when, one of three ways when troubles big or small shake our world. Number one, we can deny the problem. We keep a stiff upper lip and we forge ahead as if nothing happened. That didn't hurt. That didn't hurt. Option two, we can respond with bitterness, anxiety, anger. Someone will pay for this. Let me see your manager, right? Number three, we can learn, grow, and benefit from the pain. How can I use this hard experience to become a better ambassador for our king? He closed with this paragraph I like so much I put it in your notes. Learning, growing, and benefiting from our adventurous pain is easier said than done. But as Christ's ambassadors, we are provided the power, love, and support we need to face the turbulence with confidence, not denying, not fighting, but becoming more and more like the king 
we represent. Wasn't that great? And Dan's excellent essay takes us to our own response. I suggest each of us ask three questions. I have three questions for you. I recommend these. Number one, ask yourself the same thing I pose to those students. What habit needs to change for me to be a better ambassador? What needs to stop? What needs to start? What needs to change so that I can live out who I am as one who is katalaso, reconciled to God? Think about that. Pray about that. What needs to change? Number two, whom will I invite to hear the good news? With, uh, with whom will I share a story and song on the 13th or ask to, to join me for Christmas Eve, either, either remotely or in person? Knowing the gospel is going to be winsomely shared on those nights, who am I going to invite to join me in reconciliation? That's the second question. And by the way, you need an answer to that. You need to always have an answer. With whom am I building a relationship for the reconciliation of God? Number three, speaking of reconciliation with God, it takes us to the third question. Have I accepted God's offer of reconciliation? Have I opened this Christmas present of the righteousness of God that is mine by Jesus' achievement and, and by trusting Him alone? If you have not, let nothing hold you back. Pray with me. Let's pray. Father, I pray for anybody who, who is studying with me today, wherever they may be, I pray that they, uh, that they realize that their, their D-string is off. And deep down they know it. They know that your absolute standard is not being met. And that they cannot tune themselves any more than this string on my guitar could tune itself. Father, I beg you that you will open their eyes to what you have provided. The perfect tuner, Jesus, who plays for us, in whom we get to live. Friend, if you have never trusted Jesus, do so right now. Salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Put your trust in Him. Let Him make you beautiful. If you just trusted Jesus as Savior, I'm so excited for you. Would you raise your hand? Everybody else is praying. Just raise your hand and look at me. All right. Awesome. Father, thank you for these believers, new and old. And I beg you to bless us, bless us in you. In Jesus' name, amen.